Welcome everyone to the MOH podcast. I'm Jim Patton, your host, and we're going to have another winky tape today. This is one that uh, comes from the era that we've been dealing with, which is in the in the 70s, and it's a topic that you don't often hear messages about. I, I don't even know if I've ever heard one other than from Winky, um, but it's a, it's a subject that is important because the scripture says we're to love our neighbor as ourself, and if we don't know how to love ourselves, then we won't know how to love our neighbors. So uh, come along for this ride as Winky talks about how to love yourself. We're going to talk tonight about how to love yourself. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 5.29, No man hates his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. I think you understand that. By the way, the illustration here is set in the context of marriage. Talking about marriage a little earlier. Uh, <coughs> I don't know how many of you have ever done any nailing. You girls probably haven't done it vast amount. If you were nailing a nail up, bang, 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 and you missed and hit your thumb, what do you do? When that's, and you go, you stupid... <coughs> what do you do? You go... <coughs> that's what you're supposed to do with your wife if she does something stupid. That's the context. <laughs> now the Bible gives us... <laughs> the Bible gives us a very interesting principle. As a matter of fact, it is a, a command of the Lord... In the book of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 36, 37, through to 39, when that young man came to Jesus, who was a lawyer and a scribe, and said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And you love your brother or your neighbor, Sister, as you love yourself, I've heard a great deal of sermons on how to love God, a larger number on how to love your brother. I don't think I've ever remember hearing in my life a sermon on how to love yourself. But it is, it is a Bible principle. And if you can't love yourself, you find it hard to love your brother. You can't love your brother, you find it hard to love God. So it's important to learn to love yourself. Now let's talk about the subject. I think uh, we should talk about pride at this point. Pride, I think most people think of as being a big wheel. And most of you, you know, I suppose if, you, if I said to you, describe for me the characteristics of a proud person, I suppose most of you would think, well, he sort of went around, you know, this kind of, the big wheel, the one who wrote a book on humility and how I achieved it, with 101 glorious full-color pictures of himself. And the sequel to that book is 100 famous men who knew me. You all know that kind of pride. That's the very obvious kind. 
But would it surprise you to know that this kind of pride is not the only kind of pride in the world? As a matter of fact, there's another kind, and it looks just like humility, but it's pride too. I call it the pride of the worm. It goes something like this. God could never use me. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm just a worm. I think I'll go down the garden and eat worms. Have you ever seen a girl play the piano? She plays something. You say to her, boy, you really play the piano well. She says, oh, it isn't anything. What she really means is, say it again, I missed it the first time. Some girl's wearing a nice dress. You say, I like your dress. She says, oh, this is all red. You know, it's easy to be proud. This is the pride of putting yourself down. But both are forms of pride. Scriptures have a couple of different words for pride. There's a word called hypophania. This is the word for think more highly. That's that one there. And then there's alazonia which is used in 1 John 2.16. To get this right. That means boasting. But this is an interesting word for pride is this word. You know what it means? To be wrapped in smoke. Isn't that a wild word for pride? To be wrapped in smoke. It's not to get a clear picture of yourself. This is the word used in 1 Timothy 3.6. Now, the man who's wrapped in smoke then can be wheel or worm. He can be either kind. <coughs> but uh, let, me, let me give you a few goodies on this thing to explain. I think if we wanted to define what pride was, pride would be basically to refuse to accept yourself for the way you really are. Pride is to refuse to take your proper place in God's order. I'll say this to again. Pride is firstly to refuse to accept or accept yourself or acknowledge that you are who you really are. In other words, it's a refusal to properly evaluate your own position. Secondly, pride is a refusal to take your proper place in God's order. The refusal to be who you really are. That's what pride is. The man who thinks of himself more highly than he ought is a man who is proud because he he has not really seen himself in the light of God. He's not seen the infinity of God in his own littleness. He's not seen the greatness and the glory of God in his own tiny little glory. So that's why he's proud. The man who refuses to take his proper place in God's order because he continually puts himself down, the man who continually backs out of things because he says he's too unworthy to do it, that man has also refused to take what God has said about human beings is that we're made in God's image and therefore we're valuable and we're important because we're created in His image. 
and he's refused to take God's proper place in God's order because he's treating himself like a piece of dirt when God has called him clay breathed by the Spirit of God. So there's two kinds of pride, wheel and the work. Now I've often thought to myself, how is it that people learn to be proud? Because it's an easy thing to learn. Most of you have probably run into a lot of people here who are big wheel proud. Even less, there are still some, a lot of people going around who are worm proud. But I've been thinking, I think very little kids, though they show off a little bit, very little kids <coughs> are very realistic. Being proud, remember, is to be wrapped in smoke. Now, the Lord Jesus said, except you become as little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think there's some marvelous things about little children. They get slightly older, they become monsters, but little children. There's some marvelous things about little children we can learn, and one of them is this. Little kids are very frank and they're very honest. They're also very open about things. When you get a little older and you're not a little kid anymore, you learn to get sophisticated and cool. See? You also learn to be dishonest and you learn to be unfrank, whatever that is. When I was little, my mother had a shop, a dress shop, and my mother is a pea addict. She needs a cup of pea every ten minutes. So she would put the jug on at an off hour. Uh, she'd put my little sister, who looked somewhat like Shirley Temple with little curls and stuff, sit her right on the counter. She'd rush out the back to start boiling a jug, put some tea together. My sister would sit on the counter, and my mother would say to her, Listen, would you let me know if somebody comes into the shop? Mother'd rush out, boil a jug, get the tea ready. My little sister would be sitting there with her little curls looking. Pretty soon a very stoutly matron would come into the shop, a lady with a large amount of wealth, fit her with a dress, it was always a costly thing, she had a good account with my mother, she'd come in, we would just call her slightly on the stouter side, you know what my little sister said? Mother, there's a big fat lady in the shop. We lost an awful lot of customers when my sister was in the shop. Little children are frank, they're honest, they're open. You see, unfortunately for us, we get older, we learn to pretend. That's a very scary thing. I think of a little girl who's playing on the floor of a large supermarket fooling around like little kids do on the floor. And the mother is buying lingerie or something. And a large man with very large, crunchy boots comes crunching down the aisle. Crunch, crunch. Probably weighs 400 pounds. Little kids playing on the floor. You can't see her for her stomach. <coughs> Boom! Right on her finger. Little girl does what she, you know, she goes, Goes up into ultrasonic. She 
lets out this horrifying scream that echoes up and down all over the department store. She hits the ultrasonics and she's just starting to come down again. And the mother points at her and she says, Shh! Don't you cry in here! It looks up. Why not? It hurts in here, see? But you see, you're taught from very small. Don't pretend all the time. Pretend you're happy when you're blue. It isn't really hard to do. See? And when we're little, we're told, smile. Always, you know, people say, how are you? Most times, then you don't say, well... There's all these problems that I just say, all fine, you know, even if it isn't. You learn to say that. I hear somewhere in some places in Germany, they don't. You say, how are you? And they go, one, two, three, and All right. What a horrible thing it was to me when I was a little boy, and I liked chocolate cake. My mother, who wished to be known for her well-disciplined children, sent us off to this party. And she'd say, you're allowed to eat two pieces of cake, and that's all, no more. At the end of that time, if they offer you, say, no, thank you, I don't wish to have any more. <laughs> I'd go to this party, everybody else would get large chunks. I always got the little bit through. Boom, one, that's gone. I'd hang around there looking for the, I wanted the rest of the thing. She'd say, would you like another piece in one of these? It's like it was a slice of ham and was so thin. Boom, that was gone. And then she'd say, you know, you didn't get any really large pieces. Would you like a bigger piece? And cut off a decent size <laughs> chunk of chocolate cake. And bring this up and she'd say, would you like another piece? And I had to stand there, like George Washington, and say, no, thank you. I don't wish to have any more. What a horrible thing. Now, God proposes to make us frank, honest, and open. That's part of the gospel. What he wants to do is to deal with pride. He has ways and means of so doing. Circumstances he can arrange around us can shatter our sophistication. I think of a lady who was entertaining a man <coughs> of great fame and repute. The man had a very large nose, somewhat like a pelican. Red, pimply, with open pores, a very large nose. <laughs> The mother was a very sophisticated lady. She had a little boy in the house. The boy should be seen and not heard. She said to her son, Now listen, I've got a man coming here for coffee. He has a very large nose. You say one thing about his nose, I will splificate you. Small boy did not wish to be splificated, whichever this was. Soon there was a knock on the door. The lady had laid out all the coffee cups ready. The knock on the door and in comes the nose followed by the man. <laughs> the largest nose you ever saw in your life. The little boy is that age of great curiosity. And as the nose comes in, He's never seen a nose like that in his life, man. That is the biggest nose you ever saw. Follows the man around looking at his nose, and he keeps going. A 
And the mother, you know, the Bible says, I'll guide you with my eye. You know what that means? Mother is guiding the child with her eye from across the room. And this little kid's silent. He looks like he's going to say something about the nose all the time. And the mother is sort of going, like this. But you see, he's, she's also got a smile to the guest. See, she goes, this, like this. The little kid looks like he's about ready to say something. So the mother sits the man down quickly, puts down the coffee cup, smiles, picks up the, co- the, the coffee pot, begins to pour the coffee, smiling at him. And then she says to the man, would you like cream and sugar in your nose? God has a way of arranging circumstances to make us frank, honest, and open people. And he will do it. You know, I think one of the problems with being a grown-up today is that you lose the eyes of a child. You don't see like a child anymore. God wants to humble us so we become like little children. So we don't get sophisticated and so cool and so uh, you know, structured that we can't understand. And we, somebody said that genius, 90% seeing with the eyes of a child, 10% is hard work. That's, uh, that's a marvelous thing. When I was in San Francisco once, the Lord had been dealing with me about extending my consciousness so I could be a Renaissance man as well as a Reformation man. It's a cool thing to think about. I was in a coffee bar, and I had never been vastly interested in art because I came from the scientific field. I was hoping that I'd understand something about the art forms around me. And I was asking the Lord if he'd help me. I remember sitting down in this coffee bar, and as I was talking, I looked up on the wall and I saw a painting. And suddenly I saw, you know, it's possible to see things, and then the scene. And suddenly I saw this painting for the very first time in my life. I saw a painting. And I think I saw right into the soul of the man that painted it. It was a very powerful painting because, do you remember those little, do- those little kids with the big eyes? You know, make you sad just looking at the eyes? They're very, very pathetic little kids. You know, they stand around with their big eyes. Very sad. All right, I saw a picture where there was a lot of stubbly grass like this. The grass was all brown. There wasn't one single piece of green in the whole picture. The grass was all brown. It was all dead. It looked like stubbly hay. Oh, but not even gold. It was kind of a browny dead color. And some of the grass was longer in the back. Some of it was shorter. In the front, <coughs> there was a little girl. She was standing there, and she had these large eyes. These big, same, sad sort of eyes. In the background, sort of buried behind some of the grass, was a little boy who was watching her, half hidden in the grass. He also had these large eyes. <coughs> the sad thing about the picture was everything was brown. The sky behind them was a kind of a yellow ochre color. Even the sun, which was shining, was just a flat, dull penny. It wasn't even shining. 
just a white flat disc in the sky. And they looked at those pictures. There's a picture of those two little kids. And suddenly, they realized the only blue in the whole picture was blue in the eyes of those two children. The scary thing about this picture is this. Though they had big eyes, just like those other painters, when you looked into the blueness of their eyes, they were just two chips of blue glass. There was absolutely nothing in that. I was looking at two dead dolls in a dead world. The Lord spoke to me and he said, when the children lose their dreams, it is the end of the world. Now we need to come back to being honest and frank and open again. And that is basically what the destruction of pride does. God wants to take off the smoke we've been wrapped in. Let us see ourselves again, fresh, new eyes. Pride comes out in all different ways. Some people said there's been pride of faith, way we look, pride of race. We belong to a superior strain genetically. There's all kinds of, of uh, different kinds of pride. <coughs> I put another one down here. Place. Look at the place where I live. Look at the position I have in society. Scariest one is pride of grace. How marvelously I've advanced in Christian things. You know, we have uh, some camps that we run. Now the Lord led us to do these. We call them concentration camps. They're resemblance to a real consecration camp. It's purely intentional. <coughs> we take kids for six days. We teach them for 16 hours a day. Train them intensively. The interesting thing is the screening process we use on these camps. I, I just know what it's like to go to, to camps. We have a lot of uh, youth camps during a summer, sometimes up to five, six hundred young people at a time. And camps like this, we have a bunch of young people. There are usually a whole bunch of monsters in those camps. Kids with one eye in the middle of their forehead running around. Horrible thing. You can preach your head off Friday night. Some of the monsters decide they'll get squared away with God. Friday night's the last night they have to. do no good to go back to their pastor and say they never went up to the altar. So Friday night all the monsters come forward and we get them roughly cleaned up. They've got one night to enjoy it and then they go back to start their mess again. So we decided, forget the monster thing, let's take a group of kids who really mean business for God, who are saved as they know how to be, who are sold out to Jesus Christ as they know how to be, and let's take kids and put them and train them. The question is this, how do we avoid the superstar? How do we avoid the kid who comes in and says, well, you know, I went to one of those camps too, that kind of kid. I'll tell you how we avoid them. We simply wrote in our publicity, please don't come to this camp if you're already advanced in the Lord. This is a camp for learners only. So all the superstars said, well, obviously that's not for me. Cross, cross, cross. Or we had a beautiful bunch of kids. We want two things, and I think the Lord Jesus wants two things of everybody in this room. The willingness to learn. The willingness to obey. If I had been Jesus, I wouldn't have picked any of the disciples. Wouldn't have picked Matthew. Think that sold out to the system. I wouldn't have picked him. Certainly wouldn't put the time in the zealot, left-wing radical in with him. 
And we killed each other in the first night. I wouldn't pick James and John, they talked too much. Peter with a foot-shaped mouth, I wouldn't have picked him either. I wouldn't have picked anybody. Maybe Judas. Judas was an intelligent dude. I think I would have picked him. But the Lord Jesus did, and the only two things I know about all those disciples they had in common were those two things. Each one was willing to learn, and each one was willing to obey God, whatever the cost. And that's all Jesus is looking for today, isn't he? <laughs> Remember what we said the conditions of peace were? Common knowledge, common unselfishness, wisdom and virtue. Jesus is looking for learners. You know what I have in my passport? I go to other countries. I'm not a preacher, I'm just a layman. You know what I got on my passport? Student. I hope to have that on my passport when I'm 90 years old, as the Lord tarried. Student. You know what that is in Hebrew? Disciple. <laughs> the day I stop learning and the day I stop obeying Jesus Christ is the day I stop being a disciple. Every man who comes to Jesus Christ cannot afford to be proud. You know what the Bible says? What do you have that you haven't received? Think about it. Your life is given to you by God. Your body is upheld by His energy. The knowledge that you've learned that's been worthwhile has come from Him. The only original thing about you has been your sin. What have you got that you haven't received? Oh, yeah. And remember what John the Baptist said? He of whom Jesus said, I tell you, there's none born of woman greater than John the Baptist. <coughs> he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. You know what he said? He must increase. I must decrease. So pride. Now let's give you some, some, uh, some tests of pride now. These are three ways, or three or four different ways, by which you can know whether or not you've got a problem in this area. Have you ever wished you could just start again, go back, right from when you're a little kid and start all over again? You know that's exactly what the gospel proposes to do. Proposes to make you again like a little child, so you can start all over again. God can get through with you, humbling you, breaking you, Putting down, starting you all over fresh and clean, and you can learn all over again. Matter of fact, Jesus says this, through the mouth of one of his prophets, the Old Testament, I will restore unto you the years that the locusts have eaten. So he'll even help you with the stuff you've blown. Here are some ways. First of all, one of the chief signs of lack of loving yourself is Jesus wants you to do is a crowd fear. This, uh, this kind of thing. Nobody loves me. Nobody likes me. I'm always getting left out of things. I just don't fit in anywhere. I don't want to meet anybody else because they'll laugh at me too. That's the first sign of that. Matthew 19.19 says you should love your brother as you love yourself. Now, if you're afraid of meeting people, it's often a result of not loving yourself. You see, you're always scared to meet people when you're not relaxed, when you're not simply accepted yourself the way Jesus wants you to be. This means 
we're afraid of what other people think of us. That's why we don't want to meet them. Now, some people think it's the physical problems they have. You know, if a uh, guy's got big ears or something, he's scared to talk to some girl, in case they'll see, boy, you look like Mickey Mouse with those big ears or something. Are those your ears or are you modeling ping pong paddles? Leads us to the next one. Do you catch yourself saying all the time, I just look rotten all the time. My hair is such a mess all the time. Now I know when you get up in the morning, your hair can look like an explosion in the mattress factory. Concern for looks. Especially, I think, when we always seem to be bothered about things that really can't change. Now, if you're a little bit fat and you're worried about being too fat and you can go on a diet and lose it, that's all right. It's all right to be concerned about that. But what say you're too tall or too short? You know? Or your eyes are blue and you'd rather have them green with purple spots or something. See? You could wear contact lenses. I think the real problem of concern for looks is this. When you're moaning about things that can't be changed, that's the real sign of, of lack of self-acceptance. When you're always bothered about the things that you really can't change. I think it's good to be bothered about things you, can't, you can change, but it's not good to be bothered about unchangeable things. Do you remember Jesus said, which of you by taking thought can add one, one, stat, you know, one cubit to your stature? Maybe when you get a new body, it will be a spiritual body, which I don't think means a ghostly body. I think it's a body in control of the spirit. So maybe you can change your shape in the resurrection. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? If you're a little short, you go... You know, add another, another cubit to your stature. Or you're a little tall, you know, and you go around like a little dude. Concerned for look. But... Uh, do you remember this old poem? It's a good little one. It's a little, just a little saying. It's a prayer, really. It goes like this. God, grant me the serenity. Do you remember? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Right? Concern for looks. That's one of the signs. Isaiah 45.10 says this, Woe unto him that says to his father, What have you begotten? Or to the woman, What have you bought for? <coughs> I meet an awful lot of kids on the street. I didn't ask to be born. That thing. And then, another thing would be this. Three, uh, it's a weird thing, this one. I call it creepy Christianity. Benefit of you second language students, you know what creepy means? Creepy is <laughs> a thing with 16 legs crawling up, goes creep, creep, creep. Something that makes you feel... Like this. Now, there's some people I meet who are supposed to be Christians, and, you know, I don't doubt their sincerity, but there's something really weird about them. 
You know that that the little old lady with the bun and hairy legs and tennis shoes with the Bible half as large as a piano that goes to every meeting, you know, I hear, <laughs> and she sits right in the front row and she goes, or she's going, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, and you, you sort of say, it's nice to praise the Lord, yeah. But she's doing it at the wrong time. The devil is a rotten person. Amen. Some people say the devil is good. Amen. You know, there's, there's some Christians that just are sort of weird. And usually you write them off, well, they're probably demon-possessed or something. They may be, you know, but there's some other reason sometimes why people get creepy. And one of them, one of the reasons why people are creepy is because they never learn to accept themselves. So they have to do kind of weird things so that people will accept them. And you understand this, I think. You know, it's very obvious when there's a bunch of junior high school kids, or let's say 12, or, you know, when, when guys are always doing weird things, breaking windows so people will notice them and this kind of thing. But this is just kind of more sophisticated. You do Christian things. You know, the person who's always standing up in a meeting and always praying louder than anybody else and always too long, and Bill Moody saying, the man prays five minutes, I'm praying with him. When he's praying ten minutes in a public prayer meeting, I'm praying for him. And when he's praying fifteen minutes, I'm praying against him. Creepy Christianity. Let me give you some signs of the creepy Christian's words. Often they'll say something like this. Nobody really understands my calling with God. God has called me to a work that nobody in the world will ever know about except me and Him. That kind of thing. I have a special ministry that nobody else has ever had or ever will have. That kind of thing, alright? Um, see, they do all the right things, but it doesn't, they're not relaxed. Now, a marvelous thing about being a real Christian is that you're simply ordinary. You, you grow. Uh, Jesus used the illustration of a vine, see, like this, and, and a grape. You know, grapes hang down on the vine. There's different bunches of them. See, but a grape doesn't try to be a grape. Have you ever seen a grape trying to be a grape? <laughs> A grape just simply takes the life of the vine and it's a very relaxed, happy, natural growth. Doesn't try. I made a lot of raisins. That's the grapes falling off the vine and dried up. That's... Creepy Christians seem to try too hard to be Christian. Here's the last one. Or a critical spirit. Do you find yourself always saying these things? Nothing I do seems to turn out right. How come she always does things so well and I don't? How come he always gets the lucky breaks and I don't? That kind of attitude. Another result of this is arguments with people. Continually getting into arguments with people. Uh, a lot of times, the person who's not accepted himself 
is very quick to find faults with others. And you can see the result of this. You've got to keep pointing to other people because you figure if you point long enough to others, nobody's going to look at you. You point out everybody else's defects, people won't notice your supposed one. <coughs> Critical spirit means that life is a civil war, constantly fighting with, with yourself. <coughs> now, I don't know why a person has not accepted himself. There's a lot of different reasons for it. Sometimes it's because we like somebody that we really admire a lot, but we can't really be like that person. Now, when I was in, in high school, there was a boy called Norman Palmer. And you can tell with a name like Norman Palmer what kind of guy he was. He was blonde haired, curly hair, blue eyes, all the girls were... It's Norman, you know, when he walks every morning. Always dressed, fabulous, good at studies. We used to all go over We hadn't got out the problem or we hadn't finished our homework. Go and ask Norman. He always had it done, you know. Never seemed to study, just run off the test. And then, if that was enough, you know, he should have at least had glasses and looked studious. Not only that, he was an athlete. On the, on the horses, you know, you have to do somersaults over the horses. Norman would come up, you know, spring and then away. I'd come up, there'd be destruction all over the place, Norman, bowing, you know. And then the school sports. Guess who's got a track suit running around, everything hurdles, shot put, distance running. Oh, boy, we used to say, oh, Norman, you rotter, you know. And really, it was this. I wish that we could be like Norman Palmer. I don't know what happened to Norman Palmer. I hope he became a big, fat athlete. <laughs> but a lot of times, lack of self-acceptance comes because you really like somebody and you can't be like them. That's one reason, all right? Another reason means uh, maybe you have a deformity. I've met some people and, you know, they have maybe a hair lip or something like this, or maybe, you know, one ear is seven foot high or something, you know, some kind of thing that, that's just a deformity. And, and a lot of times, because in our culture we're, we stress so much perfection. There's some supposedly international geophysical standard of perfection. You know, you measure a person up against it and say, ah, you are less than perfect. And so people with have some kind of physical deformity really feel down because they feel like they don't stack up, they don't make it. <coughs> deformity can... I know one young man in New Zealand, he had a bit of a hair lift wasn't very noticeable, really. He could speak all right without it. It didn't affect his speaking. But I really think that he felt that uh, people rejected him because of his hair lift. And he was, a, he was a guy who was in Christian circle. I saw him go really strange, this guy. Finally, he started thinking he was the Messiah reborn, standing out on train tracks trying to stop trains and all kinds of stuff like this. And I think it can because of that. 
deformity. Maybe you're mad at God. Suppose Bill Gossard would call that a floating bitterness. <laughs> it's possible, you know. If you look at the world around you, if you look at your circumstances, you can get angry at some people. <coughs> but I've met kids, if I look at their lives, they do seem to be bitter. But the, if you ask them, are you mad at somebody? They say, well, no. They can't think of anybody. I remember going back to New Zealand one time, and there was a young lady that was supposedly gave her life to the Lord in one of the meetings we had in high school. She was just a, a pretty plain sort of girl. She wasn't, you know, any marvelous looking girl, but she was a, a lovely girl in her own right. And I came back to New Zealand after spending about a year and a half in the United States working in Pink Challenge. During that time, I learned to recognize some things like bitterness. And I came back, I preached at a camp meeting, and I saw this girl come up. And I looked at her, and I couldn't believe my eyes. It was this girl that I'd seen a year and a half. She had been happy then. She looked like a witch. I mean, you know, like the, the fairy story type witches. Hair was just black and frizzy, just went like this. Just straight down in her eyes. They were so dark and so deep, looked like somebody had got two corks, burnt corks, and screwed them right into her eyes. She had this deep, deep sunk eyes, and this hair just going, dressed in black. She looked a mess. She came up looking all weird, and I said, what's wrong with you? You know, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, oh, is that you? You know, is that you under there? That was really a weird thing. And uh, I looked at her face, and I looked after she's talking, and I realized she was bitter. And I started asking a question. Somebody hurt you? No. I went through everything, and I said, listen, I don't care what you're telling me. You're bitter. She said, I said, somebody, you've, you've been hurt by somebody, and you're mad at them, and that's the reason why you're in a mess now, and you're never going to get out until you're willing to forgive them. I am not bitter, she said. I said, all right, let me show you the signs of bitterness. Flipped over to my notes. Bizarre, 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 bizarre. Laid out all these. She looks down. She said, you just wrote this down. I said, they are not. They're typed. I don't have my typewriter on. She said, all right, I'm bitter. I said, now who? She says, I don't know. I found out. When I was overseas, her mother was killed in the traffic Mother was running out, cut the road, didn't look. Car hit her, knocked her over, she died in hospital. She was only 15, 16 years old. You know what she thought? God, why did you do that? Why did you kill my mother? I needed her. Floating bitterness against God. Blaming God. That can happen in many, many people's lives. Floating bitterness against God. Mad at God. Result. Sometimes a very serious thing. Now, the reason why God is so much against pride is it breaks a large number of the Ten Commandments. If you think too much about yourself, I remember... You know, I said pride is not thinking too much, too highly of yourself. 
Well, thinking too little of yourself. That can be either pride. Pride is basically just thinking too much about yourself, whether you think you're too big or too little. That's what pride is. When a man is proud, he's always talking about himself. Whether he's saying, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, he's still talking about himself. Or when he's saying, well, I'm the world's greatest so-and-so, then he's still talking about himself. When a man really gets delivered from his pride, he forgets himself. He starts thinking about others, he starts thinking about, you know, what God is doing in other people's lives and stuff like this. Now, if you're puffed up with pride, you think about yourself all the time, you break the first commandment. You put some other God before God. That's pride. You make yourself God. That's one commandment you break. You're not content with what you have or are. That's why there's criticism all the time. That breaks the command you shall not covet. That is a command, remember. Do not covet somebody else's ministry or talents or something else. You put up a false front, trying to pretend you're less or more than you actually are, and you know what command that breaks? You shall not bear false witness. You lie to people. That's another command. There's three of them, just from pride. Your funny dress or your funny actions begin to take people's attention off God in your life and draw it onto you. And that breaks the law that says thou shalt not steal because you stole the glory that belonged to God. He's supposed to be center of the stage, not you. And if you hold hate in your heart towards God, the Bible says that's equivalent to murder and that breaks the command thou shalt not murder. So look at all the commands you break. Look at all those commands you break just by being proud. Now, what do you do about pride? All right, let's show you what to do about pride. You know, a lot of you are going to be moving out and doing a lot of counseling with different people. There's some sins that are easy to spot. Easy to spot bitterness. Easy to spot that one. Sexual immorality. Easy to spot that one. Easy to spot a lot of things. Anger. Easy to spot them. Tell you the hardest one to spot. Not loving yourself. So I've got a simple rule in counseling now. If nothing else fits, that's the problem. That's a, it's a very simple one. Man has got me out of some hole. Think of a young man in New Zealand. Came to me. He said, man, I've got a real problem. I said, what's your problem? <laughs> he says, the Lord has called me to the ministry. He called me to be a preacher. Promised me a great ministry. But I smoke. I said, so you do, I know this. <laughs> he said, I've been every spiritual superstar in New Zealand. I've asked him to pray for me, and I still haven't got deliverance from this thing. I've had people try to cast demons out of me. People pray for the healing of my memory. People do every trip there is in the world, and I'm still smoking. He said, what's my problem? I said, well, I'll tell you what your problem isn't. Your problem isn't smoking. Oh, all right, what is it? I should not know. Not smoking, no. Smoking was your only problem. You wouldn't, you know, be easy to deal with. You just pray, boom, and there'd be relief. I said, no, there's something else. I don't know what it is, but there's something else. 
And uh, the guy says, well, can you help me? I said, I don't know. I'll tell you what, I'll give you a little sheet to fill out. I got a thing in the back of the manual called an analysis index. And I put that there because sometimes I don't know what a problem is, but I'll give it to a kid and I'll say, you go through this. It has signs, negative and positive, of problem areas or development areas in the spiritual life. And I said, you go through that. You be as honest as you know how to be. Check it out. Go through. <coughs> it's a cute little thing. Gives you a series of positives and negatives on an area. Good for counseling is this kind of thing. See, it's got a negative, got a positive. I said to him, you go through that. <coughs> I gave him a sheet. Said, you come back, give me the sheet, and I'll go through it on my knees, and I'll try and see if I can find out what's wrong. We talked a little bit longer. He told me some of his situation. And I was praying, listen, I had to come to America straight after that. I preached Monday morning and flew out Monday evening. Rides in America Monday, same time, because of the time difference. <coughs> this guy waiting for me, and here it is, it's Sunday night, and I've got this little sheet I'm going through that he's given me, checking everything off and putting little lines going out to different directions and stuff. Still didn't know what his problem was. I come up with three things to the finish. One of them, he said he got, he said he got angry sometimes, flew off the handle sometimes. What was the problem? Unyielded rights. Remember we dealt with love slaves? Another thing he said is he had a fear of sticking up, uh, of, of people calling, um, you know, a fear of the crowd. It's another thing. And so I knew that, that he wasn't willing to stand with Jesus. He had to do that. The unusual thing, he wasn't afraid to preach to the crowd, large group of people. You know, he would preach to a group of young people who didn't know Jesus, and he'd see 30 to 80 people come to get saved. He wasn't afraid of preaching to sinners. You know who he was afraid of? He was afraid of the opinions of other Christians, especially about his smoking. That was a problem. Stand with Jesus. And the last one I found was, found some things on self-acceptance, quite a number of them. Now, I'll give you the problem. How do you get on with it? Here's a kid. God has called him to a ministry. God has promised him a ministry. A good ministry. A great ministry. Self-acceptance. Those three things. And here is, all I've got is these three things. <coughs> I didn't know what to do. He's asking me for help. Now, what do I do? He said, I'll do anything, go anywhere. You know, pay anything, write anything. You know, he, he was really keen to do anything. So I knew those were three problems. What do you do? I could tell him to write out his rights, but what rights? Now, I have a little philosophy in counseling that's this. That if a guy's got a problem, he'll tell you what it is. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All right? There's a young man with an unyielded right. He's afraid of the opinions of others. He's got a real problem with self-acceptance. Now tell me a little bit more about his story. His father used to be a preacher. Now he's a very large businessman. Very successful. Financial genius. His younger brother is a bit thick. He's not particularly brilliant, but he's captain of the first 15. He's an athlete, star, and all this. His uh, older brother is another superstar in Christian circles. You know, he leads this and he leads that and, you know, all that. All right? 
He's kind of the middle brother. Um, does that give you any help on this problem? Now, what do you do for counsel? All right. He comes up, and here I've got about 10 minutes before I jump into a car and head off to Auckland to catch the plane out. I know those are the three things, but why did I tell him? What right must be yielded? What's his problem? And I started talking to him. I said, well, <clears throat> it's obvious that you have three problems, right? Uh, you have a problem with self-acceptance. You're not willing to identify with the Lord, and you have unyielded rights. He said, right. All right. What do I do? I said, well, help me now, Lord. <laughs> the Lord started showing me. And suddenly, I said this. Listen. What is the one thing, the one thing you want most in your Christian life? I, I know you could say, I want Jesus. But I said, one thing you want most in your Christian life? He said, I want the ministry God has got for me. And the Lord went, flash. And I said, I know what you're going to have to do to get to it. I know what you're right is, man. You know what you've got to do to get to it? You've got to take this sheet of paper and you've got to write on it, oh God, the right to have a mighty minister. you got to sacrifice that to God. He told me his problem. I wasn't listening. God has called me to a great ministry. I'm going to be used mightily of the Lord, but I can't give up smoking. Isn't it funny when a problem is a spiritual problem and the problem is an unyielded thing that is a good thing for the Lord? But the Lord showed me why he wasn't going to use that young man. You know why he wanted a ministry? Think hard. His father used to be a preacher. Now he's a financial genius. His younger brother is a marvelous guy. His older brother is a superstar. Why do you think he wanted a ministry? Question. For the glory of God? Answer no. Because he had to have something to distinguish him from his older and younger brother and his very brilliant financial father. And I said to him, if God gave you a ministry now, you'd become an Alma Gantry in two years' time. You want to use people to build your own self-acceptance from. Every time 80 people come forward, it gives you a feeling of power. Look at the ministry God is giving me. That's why it bothers you. When other Christians put you down because of this, you want them to feel like you're a marvelous person. And I said, the first thing you've got to do then is give your rights to ever minister to Jesus Christ. He said, I couldn't do that, man. I said, yes, you can, and you'll have to. What do you have to do? You've got a problem with self-acceptance? You've got to find a right. The right to be like somebody else, maybe. Huh? Maybe you've admired Billy Graham, said, oh, honey, I could preach like Billy Graham, practice. The Bible says, you know, and tried many nights. I was talking to a man, and he said to me the other day, David Wilkerson, wow, I'd like to be a skinny preacher and walk the streets with the Bible. I want a mighty ministry like Catherine Coleman. 
have people fall over when I touch them. Whatever rights, whatever rights, you give those to God. That's step one. Step two, I understand what I said to him. You give up the rights to minister so that if God just wants you to be an ordinary, everyday Christian, not particularly distinguished in anything, you'll say hallelujah. Can you do that? You know, I said to God, oh God, I don't know what you want me to do, but if you want me to be a Christian garbage collector, I'll be happy in that. And it's not until you're willing to do anything God asks you to do and be happy about it, because he asks you to do it, and you know he's wise, that he'll give you any kind of ministry. You can't trust people to build their ministries by being superstars. Secondly, second part of the thing, we have to get on his knees and he had to apologize to God for using people <coughs> to build his own self-esteem. Now for you, if you've had a problem in this area, maybe you've, had a, uh, you've been mad at God for something that wasn't his fault. You get on your knees and you say, Oh God, I've blamed you for the way I look. I've blamed you because so-and-so... You know, that I heard I've got killed and I admired this person I can never... You apologize to God. You'll never be able to love your brother or yourself until you can love God. Get on your knees and say, Oh God, forgive me for blaming you for things that weren't your fault. And three... And here's a funny one. Thank God... for yourself. That's a funny one. You know what he had to do? Had he got on his knees and say, Dear Lord, I thank you I am not my father. It was a financial genius. I thank you I'm not my older brother who's a spiritual superstar. I thank you I'm not my younger brother who's a marvelous athlete. I thank you that I'm just me. With all my problems, with all my needs, with all of who I am. I thank you that I am me. Can you do that? Get on your knees and say, praise God, I'm me. I heard about a boy, he preached, and an older Christian came to him and said, son, good preaching. Keep it up, you'll be the second Billy Graham. The young man looked at him and said, sir, I don't want to be a second Billy Graham, I want to be a first you. You want to be a first you? Thank God for who you are. I heard of a preacher in Bible college. This guy used to listen, you know, there was a preacher would come in for the morning chapel and this guy would be scholarly, erudite, you know, preach very logically and sensibly laid out. And this, this young student sitting in, he had a little church over the weekend. There about ten people he used to pastor. So he used to practice on them, you know. He, he thought, wow, that was marvelous, the logic, the power. So he'd stand up and to the ten people he'd say, boom, you know. He'd go through the thing. The next guy would be running all over the place and preaching up and down from the back to the sides, you know. So on Sunday, he would rush up from behind his pulpit and preach up and down. Next guy, you know, he'd be waiting to see. Finally, the Lord dealt with him. Why don't you just be yourself? said, all right, thank you, God, that I'm just me. He said, now, now I don't preach as good as the other guys, but it's more fun. Thank God that you're just yourself. Wouldn't it be lovely to say, for people to say, 
You know, your ministry is like no other ministry I've ever seen. And you can say that if you're just yourself. Don't try to be a superstar. Take your proper place in God's order. Give all rights to Him. Apologize to Him. You've got sin in your life and that's why you're scared of meeting people. Get it cleaned up. Thank God for yourself. There's only one you. And Jesus loves you the way you are. Closing prayer. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for yourself. And we thank you that you made us the way we are. We thank you that you're the potter and we're the clay. You can take any kind of vessel and use it to bless the world. Thank tonight of Helen Keller with all the great disadvantages and the marvelous things you did through this young woman's life. Now, Father, we look at ourselves and remember that psalm that says, I, I moan because I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet. We thank you, God, that you've given us eyes, hands, feet, heart to love you, mind to understand your word and your ways. Make us unique ministers. Show us where we belong. You are the head and you are the body. All right. I kept my part short and sweet. And uh, now that's it for today. We're going to have to come back next week with a new, a new tape. Well, a new old tape. And uh, if, in the meantime, if you need uh, discipleship training materials, go to moh.org and get some of our free downloads as well as uh, free videos that you can watch. If you need to, to get a video from Winky that you can show in your church or in your group on your big, big screen TV or something, uh, you can go to winkypratney.com or winkypratney.net and uh, pick up those. But in the meantime, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.